Hi, I'm Scott Thompson, and on today's podcast, we talk about George H.W. Bush and those memorializing him, as well a new OPP commissioner. And our own Auditor General continues to slag the Kathleen Wynne Liberals, even though they're out of power, with more fiscal mismanagement. It's all coming up. Thanks for listening. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The funeral for former President George H.W. Bush is going on right now. Uh, Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney uh, has just stepped away after delivering his eulogy. Here's a piece of that. I believe it will be said that no occupant of the Oval Office was more courageous, more principled, and more honorable than George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, there you have it. And this uh, funeral is continuing, of course. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, a Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. So this funeral in progress right now, uh, yep. we've just seen uh, the Prime Minister, uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney step away. Your thoughts on him being asked to deliver part of this eulogy? I think it's a great honor for the country and in general, and it's not a surprising one either, <clears throat> based on the fact that a. Brian Mulroney, his, when he was Prime Minister, worked hand-in-hand with George H.W. Bush when he was president on various issues, including uh, acid rain, uh, the NAFTA agreement, etc. These are two men who knew each other very well, and they became close friends over a period of time. As well, Brian Mulroney, as many people may remember, gave eulogies to <clears throat> the late former president, Ronald Reagan, and his wife, Nancy. He was extremely close, obviously, to the Reagan, so that was understood. But I think a lot of people have sort of forgot about his ties or relationship directly with Mr. Bush, and it is true. They got along very well. They worked together very well. And I think that Mulroney's speech, and he's always been a brilliant orator. There's just no question of that, and I don't say that because he's among he's one of two prime ministers i actually directly know he just happens to be they're just he just has such an eloquence in his voice his delivery is often perfect and i think he really captured the life and the career and personality of george h w bush as perfectly as you could possibly hope for uh, this funeral, presidential funeral, compared to others, uh, are they all pretty much the same other than what the family requests? How do you compare this to others? Hmm. Well, um, I, I think they all sort of follow the same tenor <clears throat> in the sense that, at least if we look at more recent ones, they're were, they were held at Washington's National Cathedral. There's obviously a great procession. There are speeches made by important dignitaries, politicians, or in the case of some presidents, such as, for example, John Meacham uh, speaking today as the first speaker for George Herbert Walker Bush, historians. And I, I think what they often do is they just explore the life and career of that particular individual. So, yes, there's a pattern that follows suit, Scott. You're absolutely right. But again, <clears throat> the tone and tenor changes based on the person. Naturally, the eulogies that were made for Ronald Reagan, for example, versus George H.W. Bush were different, but where you sh- we see the closeness and the ties is how they talk about them, discussing them in terms of what they achieved in office, what they achieved with their families, what they were like as people, and how we should identify them and, more importantly, remember them. I think all these attributes, even if there is some similarity in the way that they're built, shows the uniqueness of each character. And I think 
if not as a learning experience, but just to sort of sum up a life, I think you couldn't ask for anything much better than that. So even if you sort of recognize the way things are done and the structure it's done in and some of the prayers that are used, some of the music that's used, each individual president, when he, thus far, he is buried, has led a different life, had a different career, accomplished different things, and that's what's usually covered during these processions. What about the current president's role? Well, um, the current president, as of right now, I mean, as as people saw, President Donald Trump and Melania both appeared. You know, they Mm -hmm. shook hands very briefly with the Obamas. There was no recognition of anyone else, and you can just take that for what it is. I don't think it's necessarily the place or the time to start worrying about these things. You know, there's just obviously a lot of tension between especially the president, Donald Trump, with everyone else. Expand on that a little bit, Michael. Uh, in what sense? It, it, what, is the, what is the mood? What is the dynamic there? What is the undertone? Well, look at it in two separate ways. Number one, <clears throat> obviously the Bush family welcomed the Trumps to come to this funeral. I mean, I, I don't think Melania Trump would have ever been rejected, but there's been obviously an enormous amount of tension between the Bushes and Donald Trump. But, you know, especially during a moment like this, you have to make at least some form of a detente, a truce. And that's the right thing to do. There's not peace in the valley. No one's assuming that. And look, it's interesting that, as someone pointed out, that Mr. Trump only shook hands with uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama days after Barack Obama started speaking on behalf of candidates, you know, who may or may not sort of find their way into running against Donald Trump in 2020. But again, that's the way politics is played. And if you want to be a part of the political process, you have to give as good as you can take. And I think that Donald Trump knows that most people in the room would rather not have him there. But one, I don't think it bothers him. And two, and in a moment like this, how could you not have a president, the current president, appear there? Plus, in his own unique way, I would imagine that Trump probably feels, obviously, some heartbreak. He recognizes that it is a sad day for the United States and that it should be honored in this fashion. But privately, you know, God knows what he thinks about these things, and that's not being mean or nasty. That's just sort of the way he is as a person. But I think that, like most people, I think he respected the fact that George Herbert Walker Bush was an, ex- was an excellent recipient in the White House and a very good president. Obviously, with occasions like this, past leaders, presidents, uh, uh, politicians of, uh, of every stripe, do they mingle? Do they mingle? Will the president be a part of that? Or is he in and out? Well, normally, yes. I mean, I think that's the easy answer. Today, well, look, most of the people in the room <clears throat> who are involved in politics, Scott, are conventional, which means that they will go... They will greet the president, they will have engaged in small talk, and they will leave. There won't be any warm friendships, huge hugs, kisses, etc. Maybe for Melania, who's not really to blame for anything, but certainly not for the president. But the right thing to do is what they will do in that room and what Mr. Trump will do in that room, which is to greet the people, speak a little bit, pay your respects to the Bush family, which is the most important thing, and then leave. But to expect anything beyond that, I'd be pretty shocked if it happened at an event like this. Your thoughts on uh, the images of uh, Bob Dole paying his respects? 
Yeah, that was just a, an incredible moment, mm. and it was one that was captured on video. It's, it's, you know, it's actually nice, Scott, that we live in this day and age where we can see things like that and always look back at them. It was basically one honorable person and one honorable politician saluting another. Robert Dole, as people have noticed, is in terrible health. You know, who knows how long he has to go. But George H.W. Bush was a friend. I mean, they had a, a political rivalry at times, but they did get along for the most part. They were both part of the moderate wing of the Republican Party at the same period of time. So they had great respect for one another. And I, do, I just think that it really shows a type of character that Bob Dole, even in his state, wanted to get up and wanted to salute his old friend and comrade. And that's a decency and a humanity in politics. We just don't see that much anymore. What yeah. about comparisons 41 to 43? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's been, <clears throat> there have obviously been studies written on it, and there have even been articles on it. Um, two very different people. And even though they come from the same family, that being George H.W. Bush and his son George W. Bush, um, I, I think we can see them as similar in certain ways, but different in others. Uh, George H.W. Bush tended to be what one would call a moderate conservative or on the moderate wing of the Republican Party. He tended to <clears throat> encourage bridge building. He was open, certainly, to uh, working with Democrats on various things, the, the most classic being former President Jimmy Carter, who he sent abroad to examine elections that were being held in Honduras and El Salvador. He was able to see people for who they are rather than ideologically worrying about, you know, what they represented, what they stood for, if they thought exactly like I did, etc., which is kind of a very unique characteristic to have. Now, in fairness, 43, which is George W. Bush, <clears throat> has some of those characteristics for sure. But his son was actually president in an era, even though it was not that many years apart, where politics was really starting to change. Hmm. Ideological rigidity was actually becoming more common. And the similarities that Republicans and Democrats could find with each other after the day was through and they would go out for a drink, like in the old days when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill would have war in the Congress and then have a drink afterwards in the White House, those days were coming to an end, and my guess is that George W. Bush realized it at the time. But what we've seen since he has left the presidency, and once all the battles, that being the political battles, are over, that he has actually taken a role very similar to his father, based on his friendships, say, with Barack Obama, and surprisingly, Michelle Obama as well. Mm. So, you know, it's interesting. So 41 and 43 will always be seen as different. Yes, they both fought a war in Iraq. There's some similarity there. Yes, they had uh, important roles on the international stage. That similarity will always exist. Yes, they put forward important pieces of legislation related to trade and foreign policy. Um, and, and those things will always be sort of interconnected. But in terms of the political eras that they were a part of and the presidential, well, shall we, or the presidencies that they actually had, there will always be these differences. But once mm. they left public life, I think the similarities are actually pretty clear. Interesting. Michael Tobis over this, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
the Ontario government facing questions and concerns in regard to the appointment of uh, the new OPP commissioner. Uh, the premier said he had nothing to do with it. Um, he said he was not involved in the appointment of the family friend to the top job at OPP. He says an independent hiring panel selected uh, the next OPP commissioner. It was unanimous, unanimous decision. And I told them very clearly, I don't want anything to do with this whatsoever. But this this is a man that has given 50 years of his life to policing. All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, who serves as, uh, served as an advisor to a national party leader and federal cabinet ministers, and on the line with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to be with you, Scott. Another storm brewing. <laughs> So how does this look to you? Obviously, family, friend, uh, they lowered the qualifications to uh, increase the the, uh, potential uh, pool of candidates, I guess. Does this red, should this raise a red flag? It looks strange. It certainly does. I mean, Doug Ford, you played that clip. He may be entirely right. It may be there. There may have been uh, the, the panel may have recommended this uh, this individual who wasn't a deputy chief or an assistant commissioner, which I gather were the original qualifications that were put out there, and then the search firm amended uh, the qualifications that were required for candidates. Um, and and this individual came forward who was a superintendent or district superintendent. So had, I what is it? He'd only commanded only, uh, I haven't commanded. So I'll give him credit 700 people, as opposed to thousands that the people who may have been deputy chiefs or others had have com- commanded. But Doug Ford, as I was uh, suggesting, may be entirely right, but it just looks problematic. And in politics, That perception is a real issue. And the other thing that seems to be a problem for the premier um, is this incessant leaking uh, from his own party that uh, isn't helping him because the story gets framed in a negative way before he even gets the opportunity to describe it positively. Uh, does uh, does this premier have to work harder at being trans at being transparent or at least uh, uh, appearing to be than others? I think it's something else, Scott. I think he's got to get his office in order. There appears to be some power struggle going on there, and you've covered some of these stories already. Dean French, the chief of staff, has been in the headlines often. Uh, on one occasion, related to the dismissal of uh, the senior vice president or the vice president of OPG, Ali Kanbelshi, another st- suggesting French called the chairman of the board and said Belshi shouldn't keep his job because there was some political grudge there because Belshi had uh, been Patrick Brown's chief of staff. There was another story, um, uh, French, for allegedly suggesting that uh, the police needed to uh, get involved in making arrests the day cannabis was legal in places where it was being illegally distributed. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there have been anonymous reports, which are always problematic for a premier, saying there is this ref between French and other people in the premier's office. This seems to be more of that. This is where the story seems to come. So for the premier, um, he has to be more accountable uh, with how his office is run and maybe grab the, the, the brewing storm there. Uh, by uh, by the, the by the bullhorns uh, to use a good police metaphor and straighten it out because it seems to create for him 
more of these embarrassing stories because you will remember, your listeners will remember, he was elected to do things differently than the Liberals did, not to reward friends and insiders. And this story about the new OPP chief suggests that, or people are making the suggestion, that maybe he's rewarding a good old family friend. Uh, obviously, this is a narrative that will play well with the opposition. Is this, in your mind, then, about tightening up this party, about uh, him uh, uh, making sure that the message is, is unified? Is this the party creating its own problems? The party's creating, from what it appears on the outside and from different of those anonymous sources that I know, uh, it seems to be the trouble is on the inside, that whether it's a power struggle uh, or certain people who just don't like people in the premier's office and are looking to embarrass them, that's all got to be fixed. Because if it's not fixed, I suspect we're going to have more of these stories. And uh, you don't tend to get these stories that the government's um, having trouble managing its message. The government's, off course, internally and until the end of governments, not at the beginning of them. So the premier's going to want to try and wrestle this to the ground. What advantage is there for anyone in the party to do this? I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, is the party bigger than the leader? I mean, uh, he, he's the front man that, that goes out there and, and faces everyone. What's the advantage to this for them? Other than disgruntled, you know, or well, disgruntled it, politics, it's sour grapes? It's part disgruntlement, but it's, it's people playing their own power games, Right. Um, so there's no real advantage to the party. Ultimately, they're hurting the party when stories that appear to be embarrassing or go against the brand come out like this one. Um, so they're not helping the party, but they may feel they're helping themselves by putting a rival, den of rivals, to use that uh, great uh, phrase that was often described, how Abraham Lincoln managed his cabinet. He brought them all in and they worked well together. Uh, that's not happening apparently here, but uh, people are playing their own power games for their own personal advantage, and they're not helping their party by doing it. So how was this mishandled? How, what has to be done now to fix this? I, I, well, I think we need to hear more of the facts before we give a diagnosis on that. But, look, I, I've gone through using agencies to hire senior executives for national organizations that I'm involved in. And often, uh, while there is a, uh, you, you, you let the experts, the headhunters, um, come up with the candidates and the like, at, at some level, somebody is in there from the organization doing the hiring saying, hey, you need to be sensitive to this or you need to be aware of that. Um, you know, if you believe Ford, then there was nobody interfering. Perhaps if somebody had been involved in the process, they might have said, hey, this might be a bit problematic because this person is a Ford family friend, uh, and, uh, and and we think if you put his name forward, this is going to cause the premier uh, troubles. Or the other way, and, and, say, and embrace it and say, look, um, this is a fine gentleman. He's a fine police officer. He's been a rank-and-file guy. Um, then go out and sell it. If you're going to own it, then own it and sell it. Uh, so Ford is kind of saying, I don't own it, but I'm going to sell it now after the fact, but part of selling it now is to say I wasn't involved, but damn it, I like the choice that was made. It gets to be people kind of scratching their head going, hmm, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Do you think, uh, do you think uh, uh, citizens may be saying, uh, um, you know, there's lots of candidates, why even go with something that you could be questioned on? 
Yeah. Or uh, or is that or is that is that is that reaching? Well, I think somebody has to say why. I mean, it's an instant, and I'm not, I don't want to be ageist here, but the 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 officer in question seventy two, uh, and there, Lord knows there are a lot. The president of the United States is in his early seventies. There, are, as we know, uh, age is not maybe as relevant as it once was. But okay, so you hired somebody to lead the force who's um, in in arguably the latter stages of his career, the very late stages of his career. What was the rationale? Maybe the rationale is really good and the story's really good. Somebody's got to tell it because now it's all been put into a defensive posture. I think we need to understand and the government needs to help us understand why this candidate, never mind that he's a friend of the premier, but what's the vision? What are you hoping to do with the OPP? Why are you bringing in uh, somebody uh, in his 70s who hasn't had any experience with the organization. Again, the rationale may be entirely legitimate and, and brilliant, but somebody's got to tell the story, and nobody's telling that story at the moment. So is this the opposition doing its job, or was is this the party dropping the ball on, on some basic PR fundamentals? Uh, am I allowed to use the word Christmas on your radio station? Yes, you can. No. Feel free. Okay, well... Okay, let's call it a Christmas gift to the opposition from uh, from the government. I won't ask you, Scott, to play any songs. No. Songs that we can't play. From is it cold outside, baby? No, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, it is here in Ottawa today, let me tell you. Minus 20, but probably frostier at Queen's Park for the premier. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Look, I think the opposition made, or sorry, the government made mistakes here. It becomes a Christmas gift for the opposition, and they're running with it. I mean, most times you've heard the adage, Governments defeat themselves, and, and I mean this government isn't on the edge of defeat. Let's be clear about that. But this just isn't helpful, and it seems to come from a management mistake or mistakes of their own making. So, what was the management uh, management mistake made? How should the PCs respond to these allegations? Uh, try and do what Ford is doing now. Say, look, this is a good police officer. This is why I understand the committee has hired recommended him here's our vision here's where he fits as opposed to saying yeah he's a great cop so what he's a friend of mine tell us the story of why uh that this gentleman with his experience coming from toronto coming from the outside what has he been tasked to do what's his vision and why is he the best candidate sell from that vantage point because clearly the the group that did the searching and i uh, the individual who's quoted Sal Badali, I know Sal, he's a first-class professional, and he's been in the search business for a very long period of time. He's come out and spoken a, a little bit about what they did, but it's not Sal Badali's job to come out and tell the public why they went with this choice. The government should be doing that, whether it's uh, Ms. Mulroney, who has a lot of credibility as the Justice Minister, though probably better done by the Solicitor General, but... Somebody come out and tell us why he was hired as opposed to him just being a friend of Doug Ford. Help the man do his job by telling the story of the uh, the skill set and experience that he offers that makes him the right choice. Does Ford have to work harder on this, harder on that transparency? We talked about this at the beginning. He's got to work harder on... Just because of the baggage. And, yeah, order and management, right? I, I, I think he... He's now entering a, a, a new period. He's, he's, he's given credit for getting a lot of things done early, but I think now he's got to, you know, add a little bit more polish, add a little, not necessarily in terms of his own style because that brand works, but 
in terms of the processes. Do they have processes to deal with circumstances like this? So it doesn't look like they're flying by the seat of their pants when these things pop up. And I think adding some process, adding some structure, and making it work, maybe it's there and it's just not working, is important for us. Uh, what is the biggest red... What is the... Um, is it is it is the biggest red flag here the fact that he's a family friend or that the fact that they changed the qualifications, which they say w- was to just simply broaden the the the, the uh, candidate pool? W- what's the bigger issue here, or is it uh, well, all again, of above? I can tell you my own experience with doing some of these national searches, and I've done a, a couple of them before, including for heads of a, or an organization, a national organization. Sometimes you do, you, you will get a, so somebody in your organization is getting an update on the candidate pool, and the search agency is telling you what they're seeing in the candidate pool. And somebody may say, okay, um, yeah, let's broaden the pool to see who else we might pull in here. That's legitimate, but the government needs to explain the uh, who was getting information and why they decided to broaden the pool. More of that rationale needs to be made public. Uh, but I think it's defensible. I think the challenge politically is explaining the, the the family friendship and the connection here because it flies against the brand that Ford is, you know, insiders and friends aren't supposed to be rewarded. That's why the liberals lost. That's how he wrote, wrote into power. So he's got to watch that. Uh, hard to find a politician or leader who doesn't know someone everywhere? Yeah, exactly. But... So, so, and you know, and sometimes you are going to get bitten in the backside because you uh, pronounce uh, yourself as being holier than thou and, and you don't turn out to be. But then that's, again, why I say, okay, who cares that he's a friend? Have the story told about why he's the best person for this job so he isn't penalized for being a family friend. Uh, new information coming out about the Auditor General releasing findings of a, a 2017 annual report in- investigating, obviously, whether taxpayers are getting value for their money. Uh, it says transit agencies incurred uh, something like $436 million, uh, in sunk and additional cost uh, overruns over 10 years. How is this? How, how are the PCs going to handle this? Well, that's not hard, Scott. <laughs> I think they'll invoke this name, Kathleen Wynne, yeah. Liberal government. Uh, they still have the ability to do that, uh, given that uh, they obviously weren't in power in 2017, and they can say, look, we told you so. These guys didn't know what they were, they were doing. So they start there. Uh, they will get judged on what they do with the results and how they make change. Uh, just one of the examples she has given, Ontario Works, which provided financial help to about 250,000 unemployed or underemployed Ontarians, helped only 10 to 13 percent uh, find work over the last five years. How, how do we gauge what works, what doesn't work? How do we make sure the money's being spent in the right place? Well, didn't, and isn't that the program that the government, the, the Ford government gunned? They yeah. shut that down? Yes. So, I mean, the, the Ford government will say, look, the auditor, that's how auditor generals work when you're a new government and they're pointing to the past. See, we told you, the auditor general said we were right. You were giving us a hard time and said it was terrible. Well, look, the proof is in the pudding. Um, again, that's that that that's the line of the day. What they do on a go forward basis, I don't uh, I don't know what their plans are, but they will look back before they start visioning forward. Uh, many worried about funding cuts here, uh, us here in Hamilton, about an LRT that is uh, on the table and and hopefully moving forward. Do you think we're going to see nips to things like that? 
you're asking a person in Ottawa who's had their LRT delayed, uh, mismanaged, cost overruns repeatedly, I'd say welcome to the club. Sorry, Hamilton, I don't have a lot of empathy for your plight because that is the, the same drama that plays itself out, it seems, in other places where uh, partnerships are at play, uh, major projects are in the works, and nobody has a clear sense of when things are going to come to fruition and you will actually have those LRT. I think there may be some similarities between what's been happening here in Ottawa and what's been playing itself out in Hamilton, based on what you said to me. Where does it leave Metrolinx? I have no idea. No idea. You're out of my sphere of influence. All right. <laughs> no problem, Tim. Tim, thank you so much for the time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Auditor General's report dropped earlier today. Uh, one of the portions involved Metrolinx and how they've incurred $436 million in sunk and additional cost over 10 years. Uh, what does that say about Hamilton's LRT moving forward? Hopefully nothing. To talk more about all of this, Travis Danraj is with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. And on the line with us now, Travis, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem at all. Lots of news conferences, lots of chat about this report today here at Queen's Park. So talk about this. How big a deal was this? Is this, you know, I mean, here we are still talking about the Kathleen Wynne government after the fact. Are people still, is this still resonating with people? Well, you know, the opposition say that this is really the final verdict on Kathleen Wynne's government, and the PCs and the NDP are both pointing to say, listen, everything was broken, and the PCs are saying, we're going to fix it. Uh, you know, there was, there was nothing that was earth-shattering in this report, but it certainly was stinging. And one of the points that you mentioned, Metrolinx, uh, the construction and infrastructure planning when it comes to the LRT, uh, that was a major point. One of the other major points was the technical standards and safety authority. They control everything from basically stuffed animals to oil pipelines to uh, elevators and escalators. And, and essentially, Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General, said they're not doing their job. So let's start with Metrolinx. Uh, what's the damage there? How did we get to the cost overruns? So you mentioned the, the number right off the top. So Bonnie Lissick is saying that they incurred uh, about $436 million in extra costs between 2009 and 2018 because project timelines and expectations kept changing. Vehicles also were purchased before construction contracts were even in place. Uh, there was a there was a lawsuit uh, about the Eglinton Crosstown LRT here in uh, Toronto, uh, and they had to pay out about two hundred and thirty six million dollars when it comes to that. So essentially, you know, she was saying that Metrolinx is dysfunctional uh, and they need to make some major changes. The uh, transportation minister at a news conference uh, with a number of other ministers to to talk about this report said we are going to fix things and and Metrolinx is going to be operational once again. They're going to be you know streamlined and and this won't happen again. Uh, what does this mean for Metrolinx? Uh, I think we saw the leader step down a while ago when uh, Ford took uh, power. Where is this agency going? Well, and, and this is the thing, right? Because, you know, this government wants to add more to the plate uh, of Metrolinx, and that is one of the questions that I had for Minister Yurek. I said, you know, how quickly can you make these changes? How quickly can you ensure that this uh, transit agency is is operational if you're if you're going to be adding, you know, subways, uh, Toronto 
transit system to to their uh, you know mandate as well. And he said, well, you know, we've already started with that with a new head uh, of Metrolinx, and we are going to be you know reviewing their processes, and and you know everything will will be above board very soon. Uh, but it certainly does point to some major flaws. And, and one of the other things. Uh, that they talk about in this report that Bonnie Lissick points to is that there there are so many changes going on with some of these LRT projects in, in Toronto here with the Scarborough uh, Transit Project. The city and the province, there were changes about three times and then ultimately a cancellation of an LRT project, which led to uh, millions of dollars in cost overruns uh, and inefficiencies as well. So she says that the process needs to be streamlined, that you have to have your plan in place and it has to be a solid plan before you start going and, and, and handing out contracts. Uh, a lot of projects in limbo right now, including uh, Hamilton's LRT, which is scheduled to start construction soon. Any fear of any of these projects being canceled? Any word of that? No, because that would cost even more money, right? And I don't think that the government wants wants that on, on their watch. So, you know, these, these projects are, are likely going to go through, but the, the, the processes in place uh, will have to change in order for you know, them to go through and go through and for things to be efficient. Uh, you know, uh, one of the other things that we should really highlight here is the, the TSSA, because the, the numbers that the uh, Auditor General highlighted were re- really shocking. She says 80% of elevators in the province aren't up to snuff. They're not working properly, and that's because of, hmm. you know, maintenance issues. And so there's a big safety concern here, and the minister in charge of that portfolio says that he wants a review on his desk uh, by next year to ensure that public safety is, is is paramount. All right. So, what were the key issues? We're talking about uh, Metro Links. Anything more on the on the safety issue? Yeah. Well, I mean, and it goes to uh, you know oil pipelines as well. Uh, this agency has a very wide mandate, looking at, at all kinds of you know things. As I mentioned, from from stuffed toys uh, to pipelines to escalators and elevators. On the pipeline issue, uh, she highlighted the fact that really. What the agency is doing right now, and the authority is doing right now, is that they're allowing the, uh, the, the independent companies to do their own safety audits. She says that that has to change, that they need to really look at these pipelines uh, to ensure that there aren't any leaks, that there are no you know, major spills and things like that. So, so that, that agency needs to be, that authority, I should say, needs to be overhauled, and the minister says that that is going to happen. How damaging is this, uh, Travis, simply because, you know, I mean, every time a, a party is out and another one comes in, uh, there's always, oh, well, you know, it was worse off than what we thought. How does this validate all of that? Well, I mean, it does to a degree, but, you know, the Liberals point to the fact that they were trying on, uh, specifically on this uh, elevator issue, the TSSA issue, they put through legislation that would uh, uh, would, would, would help with that issue, but there's a a lack, they say, of certified technicians, and that was the problem. They, they're saying that there are a lot of there's a lot of complex issues here that you can't just you know take that they weren't doing their job and and take that as as as, as fact. But the PCs, uh, they say that uh, they are going to fix things. Bonnie Lissick, though, was not critical of this government, and I think that's a point that we really have to point out today. She was critical of the Liberals, saying that they they tried her office tried to get them to adopt. The auditor's uh, accounting practices, that was something that they shunned, that was something that they did not want to do, despite numerous attempts and and red flags. 
And it's something that she is glad that this government says that they are going to do. And, of course, they revised their budget to double the, 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 the deficit, I should say. They revised the deficit because of the Auditor General's accounting practices. Uh, we heard lots of, of, of chatter of alternate financing or creative financing uh, when it came to the hydro file. But, uh, but the uh, Auditor General even said the same thing about Metrolinx as well. Well, absolutely, and and that is something as well that uh, you know Jeff York says that he is going to look into. Uh, you, you know, when you're ordering vehicles and you don't have uh, the the tracks to put those vehicles on, that's a major problem. Hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the, the wow. government was hoping to change the channel from the Ron Taverner story, the OPP commissioner appointment story yesterday, which right. really was the big story of the day and, and the premier's involvement in that. And I think today with the release of this report, uh, you know, we were wondering if there was going to be uh, anything significant in it. Certainly there was no smoking gun, but there were a lot of, you know, smaller issues that, that you know, build to show that the, the liberals, they, they had some major problems in their accounting. Uh, Ontario Works, another issue, uh, which I'm sure the, the Ford government will comment on. Uh, the report says provided financial help to about 250,000 unemployed or underemployed Ontarians uh, helped only 10% to 13% of the clients actually find work in the last five years. How will the PCs make hay of that? Yeah, and, and the report also says that, uh, you know, even though helping recipients find work and become self-reliant are key objectives, of the three billion dollar program, uh, you know, so, so some of this is not happening. Uh, so I, I mean, they're going to. It, it will be interesting, and we don't we don't know all of the answers yet in terms of what they are going to do to change some of the practices. They, uh, you know, those five ministers from the government that came out today to address this report. They said that they are going to make massive changes, but really, time will tell. And we'll see what legislation will be put in place. They said that they're willing to change laws. They're willing to go and, you know, make heads roll at some of these agencies and authorities to ensure that things are streamlined. But again, we have to wait and see what happens. Andrea Horvath, she was in the media studio just moments ago. I just came upstairs from that. And she said, well, you know, don't, don't, don't jump to any conclusions yet when it comes to the auditor's uh, findings next year, because she says if they don't take all of the advice in this report and they don't actually uh, enact change on a number of these portfolios and files, that next year's report could be as damning. What was Andrea Horvath's take on this and, and on the, uh, you know, uh, further confirmation of just how bad shape the Liberals uh, were in uh, in their last term? Um, uh, obviously, uh, Kathleen Wynne took her party farther to the left and, and, and kind of pinched Andrea Horvath out of the way. A lot of these promises were made in the last, uh, you know, several months of, of the mandate trying to mm-hmm. To, uh, to, to bypass the NDP. What is her reaction on this, especially considering, um, you know, the mismanagement fiscally? Well, and, you know, it was interesting to listen to her, and it was interesting to listen to the spin from the PCs, the Liberals, and then, of course, the NDP. Uh, Andrew Horvath, in her remarks, and also in answering a lot of questions from the media, had a, a split focus. She would say, you know, the Liberals mismanaged this and that, but the Doug Ford government is doing the exact same thing. They need to cha- change course. So she was taking hits at the Liberals uh, while taking hits uh, at, uh, at Doug Ford. She knows that right now she's got to focus on Doug Ford, so she had to spin it and spin this report uh, to to really target them. And I said, I said to her, I said, you know, isn't this a, a good day for 
the the PCs. Uh, you know, this report says that the Liberals broke things and they are, are coming out doing a victory lap saying we're going to fix everything. She says, well, absolutely not, because they haven't done that yet. And we have to see whether or not they do. It's interesting uh, listening to Andrea Horvath uh, talk about more spending when we've just come out of a government and, and you know, I mean, as, as, as the Auditor General has pointed out, which fiscally mismanaged a lot of things. Uh, does fiscal responsibility come into that discussion at all with Andrea Horvath or just, you know, it's time for another alternative? <laughs> uh, well, that depends on who you ask. I'm sure if you ask, uh, you know, anyone from the NDP, they say that, yes, of course, they are fiscally responsible, but they do want to invest in, in social programs and they want to see more investment. And that ultimately will, will lead to, to you know, uh, more revenue. Uh, but the, the PCs are saying that they are just want they just want to spend, spend, spend. And what they are going to do is they're going to, and you know, you heard this throughout the campaign with uh, now Premier Ford, they're going to find efficiencies in government. But the PCs, they are spending certainly a lot of money on on you know some things that that are, are questionable. A lawsuit uh, against the federal government when it comes to the carbon tax that's mm-hmm. costing about thirty million dollars. There are a number of areas that you can look to and say, uh, well, are the PCs fulfilling their promise to find efficiencies when they're spending, you know, on, on some things that people would, would say, you know, a losing battle. How are the Liberals responding to this? Or are they just hoping everything goes away soon so they can start over? Well, it's interesting. I had to come upstairs before the Liberals spoke. It was John Frazier. Uh, but I was texting with a, a couple of members of caucus before, and they're saying, well, you know, this doesn't, you, you know, the, you, you really got to look at the, the, the devil in the details here. And on, on some of these issues, there are a lot more complexities, uh, and so it's not as simple as saying what we were we, we didn't you know do our jobs and we didn't have oversight over some of these issues. And I point to once again that elevator issue, right? They say that there weren't enough technicians. That's not highlighted in the report, but in the report it says that the the agency tasked with uh, you know overseeing elevators and safety was not doing their job. So the liberals are trying to spin this, but it's very it's it's pretty tough. For them to spin it today, in it, to to make something good out of this uh, out, of, out of this eight hundred or so page report. Does this put an end to creative accounting, Travis? Do you think? Well, the you know the PC government says that it does, and, and that they are going to adopt the practices of uh, the Auditor General. Uh, they, it, it's interesting. Vic Fidelli, the finance minister, said that today. When I pushed him on that at the release of the fall economic statement, I guess that was a couple of weeks ago, he was, he was not wanting to commit to the fact that they would adopt the practices throughout their term uh, at Queen's Park as government. Uh, but today he said that they would. We'll see if they stick to that. Uh, the opposition, as I said, they're, they're not convinced that they will. They said that you know, they, they may flip-flop on that. Uh, Doug Ford, when he got elected, said he'd get to the bottom of the books and all that sort of stuff and start an investigation. Kathleen Wynne, of course, participated in that. Many said there was nothing more to learn there. After this report from the Auditor General, is that it? Are the Liberals put to bed? Is, can they use that anymore? Can they, is that it as far as them contributing to the PC cause? Well, they are still, they're still conducting uh, the committee, the financial, it's a select committee on financial transparency is what it's technically called. And as you mentioned, uh, the former premier, Kathleen Wynne, she did testify uh, the other day at it. And the, the re- report, the final report is due next week, I think it is December 13th. Uh, that's when it's due. So we'll see some, some more details at that point from that committee. But there are questions about that committee as well. You know, the majority of members on, on that committee are PC. 
Uh, the NDP are on it as well in a minority capacity. The chair is a PC uh, caucus member. There are no liberals on it. And, and the NDP say that there are witnesses uh, that should be called forward that aren't being called forward. So you're not going to get a full picture once that report comes out. But you can bet that once the report uh, is tabled and you know it, it does become public that it is going to be very stinging once again to the to the liberals so you've kind of got a one two punch here you've got this report this week and likely that report next week that you know says the liberals weren't doing their job uh, a lot of this is just confirmation i guess of what voters already knew or suspected um i mean during the campaign um you know we talked about uh, lack of due diligence uh, lack of fiscal strong fiscal management this sort of thing uh it just seems to be more of that and we certainly saw uh, that as the promises came uh, as we headed into the last election how do the liberals rebound from this how do they well, how do they make something good out of this you know it's interesting i was at the um Ontario Real Estate Association uh, political conference the other day, and I was moderating a panel with a, a couple of political consultants, uh, Warren Sella being one of them, Kathleen Monk, and uh, and Chad Rogers from Crestview Strategy. And I think it was Chad who said, you know, the Liberals are kind of like the Liberal Party, kind of like the vamp- the vampire in Act Two of a movie. Hmm. You think that they're dead, and yeah. then they come back out of the ashes and, and, and rise. They do have a very strong political brand. So as, as much as, you know, folks in this province might think that the liberals are down and out, they have a, a very strong brand. And you can, you can see that in, you know, the opinion polls right now. It, 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 it'll be a, a tough road. But they could bounce back. And there's lots of examples over history of people that have had third party status and come back to win. Uh, the prime minister being uh, one of them, that's for sure. Absolutely. So we shall see. Uh, do you think the liberals are going to spend their time criticizing what Doug Ford is and the obvious, or are they looking at the next leader who can beat them? I mean, there's lots of comparisons to Trump. That happened during the campaign, still does now. Uh, you know, and, and what has happened in the United States and populism and such? Where where are the liberals going to take this? Are they going to be the, well, pe- the, the 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 party that 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 constantly goes after Trump the way or sorry uh, Ford the way the Dems <laughs> do Trump? There's a slip. slip oh, exactly. Or yeah. or do they look for the alternative? Do they look for the pendulum to swing back the other way? And they've got the perfect candidate when well, it does. Well, you know, I think they're they're really in a rebuilding phase right now, and they're licking their wounds. I mean, obviously they're going to be doing that with this report as well. But they, they, they've got to find a strong leader. And, uh, I, you know, the, the current caucus, I, I, there are some people that I, are, I, I know are interested in the leadership in the caucus right now. But I would not be surprised if some – I'm already hearing some names of, of potential folks that could lead this party. Uh, but, but it, you know, it's interesting that you make the comparison to, to Donald Trump with Premier Ford yesterday – during the news conference about Ron Tavener, I, I asked the premier, because I had sources inside uh, the caucus meeting, and apparently he said in that caucus meeting that the official opposition, not the NDP, not the liberals, the, the media. And so I asked him that question. He admitted, yeah, that's exactly what I said, because he says the liberals and the NDP can't keep up with him. And so I, I you plan on taking on the media party for the next three years. And uh, it's similar. It's not exactly the same, but similar to what you're, you're, you're hearing Trump say in the United States. And I think the liberals will use that to their benefit. And they have tried previously, and I, I think they'll try again. 
uh, to, to make that comparison. I've asked the Premier about this directly in interviews that I've done with him. He says that while he respects Donald Trump's, uh, you know, what he has done yeah. for the economy of the United States, he doesn't necessarily know about all of some of the personal shortcomings of him. Uh, I know we're out of time here, Travis, but uh, on the OPP story, is that dead or is there more there? Oh, I think there's a lot more there. I think there's a lot more there, and I think uh, that that story is going to develop over the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, you know, the integrity commissioner could look into this, but if the integrity commissioner looks into it, as he said that he is, he may do with, uh, you know, the issue with OPG and Alikan Velshi and also the chief of staff, Dean French, that that would report would go to the premier who would then decide whether or not to make it public. But you can bet that the liberals and the NDP, they're going to continue to hammer on that and say this is the premier appointing his friends, changing the rules, and putting his friends in, in positions of power to benefit him, and that there's a clear conflict when you've got a good family friend of the Ford family who is going to be the OPP commissioner. And if you ever have an investigation that the OPP needs to conduct into this government, you're going to have a problem. Travis Danraj has been with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight to catch more on what Travis is talking about. Travis, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem at all. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.